In this episode, we have the privilege of connecting with one of the most poetic and powerful communicators that I've ever had on Gripped. He is a sought-after speaker, speaking on stages globally. He runs uh, an organization and has been a serial entrepreneur. And in this episode, he gives us all of the juicy details on his failures, the impact that's had on his leadership today, and the lessons that we can take away from those years as a leader for our own personal effectiveness, and then as well as going out into our lives and spreading that knowledge, spreading that wisdom, and inspiring the people around us to live better lives. I couldn't be more excited to have the one, the only, Terrence O'Hanlon on Gripped. This is Gripped. Terrence, welcome to the show. Wow, thank you. Uh, really great to be a guest here. Um, I enjoy you. I enjoy your team and your company, and I'm looking forward to today's conversation for sure. Yeah, me too. And for some of our listeners who are used to me chatting about, for the most part, the mental health space, they're probably curious about how do we know each other? Who's this guy? Why is he on Jonathan's podcast? And so I'd love to give just really quickly 60 seconds of context. For everyone that's listening, uh, I do spend a lot of plates in my life. I run the podcast. I go into high schools and talk to youth about mental health. And one of the major components of my life is I work full-time as an account executive at one of Canada's fastest growing software companies, and that's Fix Software. And we work in the asset management and maintenance space. So we sell software to manufacturing companies where they have expensive production equipment. They have quotas for their clients on a certain amount of goods they need to produce. And if that equipment fails, it's extremely expensive and it impacts their ability to make those goods and their profitability. And so our software helps them to track, organize, and schedule their maintenance. And because at Fix, we are committed to being industry leaders, we're searching for partners who are thought leaders in the space of asset management and reliability. And that's where the reliability web team comes in. That's where Terrence comes in. And so we met back in December of 2018. Yes. Uh, our entire company got together for a professional development event to talk about best practices and reliability. And I will say huge kudos to your organization because getting you know, 150 people out of their day-to-day of building this company to sit down and be educated and trained is uh, it's relatively expensive to take people out of their jobs. And I would just say that the fact that fix was there doing that education speaks volumes to our commitment to sustainability through reliability, but also through your effectiveness and the, all of the work that you've done in your career to get yourself to this place. So huge kudos to you on that part. And I wanted to start off with, you know, uh, if you could give us the the skinny on what reliability web is, what work you folks do, and then we can jump into you know how how that impacts uh, you know, fixes his work, and then and then you know my and our listeners' personal performance. Well, uh, thank you very much for again having me as a guest, and appreciate that introduction. Um, and I guess where I'll start is, um, you know, maybe right where you left off on that day, you know, in December, where I came up and met you and the team. 
Um, you know, and, and so the way I live my life and the way that I do my work, it was perfectly designed to deliver me on that day to your team. And your team was perfectly um, set for, to you could say receive me, I don't really want to say it that way, to, to host me there. And we ended up having what I consider to be uh, uh, a very powerful day of work that we created together there. Uh, because of who you, you and your team are and because of who we are and I am. Um, and so, you know, life's sort of perfect when you let it work. Uh, and maybe, you know, that's just about as good of an example of my work and my life as I could possibly imagine. And, and I, I did come there not expecting a lot, to be honest with you, uh, you know, because it's a large audience and, uh, you know, a younger audience that uh, possibly wouldn't be very connected to the kind of work that I do. And uh, instead, I found just the opposite. They were, I, I felt at least that they were extremely engaged and interested in the work and then actually started feeding the work to me. Um, you know, it was really one of the more vibrant days that I had in 2018, one that I certainly treasure and, and value. Um, so I know that probably didn't answer your question about who the heck I am and what's my work about, but it, it led right to that day. And that day was significant for me. Um, I just want you to know that it was powerful for me because of who your team is and, and how they showed up for training, what you could call training that day. I hope it wasn't really training. Um, so who, who, what we do, uh, it's, it's a little, uh, strange and there's a lot of ways we could describe it but really my specialty is what I call reliability now you know that's a lot of things to a lot of people um, what you know what we're really all about is just making sure that the world works that's a big you know that's a big uh, aim you know but that's what we really try to do it's important to us that the world work like we want it to work and um, that's a really big ask uh, and so if you want to bring that down a little bit we focus in the area of reliability for which for us is really kind of failure free operation now again we can apply that to a lot of different things typically like in the case of fixed software we're applying it to you know assets and their their mechanical operating uh, but you know as you as you know from that day there are lots of other levels we can apply reliability to also including the human part of of life on the planet. So, you know, we, we don't like to have, we like to call what we call unlimited opportunity sets. We like to have reliability be anywhere where anybody needs something that's failure free. Uh, and that's everywhere. So um, my work's about failure free operation, failure free life maybe. And it, and it isn't so much avoiding failure. It's about sort of understanding it. In fact, the reality, the terrible truth, if you peel the blanket off of my work, it's really, in a way, not about reliability. It's really all about failure. But, you know, somehow or another, I have this sense that if I made my work, if I titled my work failure, <laughs> titled my company Failure Web, uh, <laughs> the, the traffic may not be quite as good. Uh, but, you know, the opposite of reliability is failure. And failure is fascinating how it happens, why it happens, when it happens. Can we have some warning that it's going to happen? Um, what can we do to have it not happen? Or if it does happen, you know, what can we do to make it not hurt us so much um, or, or us not suffer from it um, or us not even notice it? Um, you know, that's the stuff that I think about. That's the stuff that I work around. Um, and, and some of that is highly technical. And, and I'm, I'm, I consider myself to be pretty good 
technically, but there's people that I work with that are extraordinary. Uh, you know, engineering type folks who you know have engine have the reliability engineering side of things you know down pat. But we we've noticed that there's reliability beyond engineering. Maybe would be the the way that we put it, and that's the space that we typically work and play in uh, because the the technical aspects of reliability are very well known for at least 40 years uh, they're very good they're very mature not everybody does them not many people actually even do them but there one reason why is because the context in which they're they're done in oftentimes is uh, misaligned or not or, or not uh, not appropriate for what the context of the situation is and so that's where we work is really in the in the area of context might be a way to put it i'm sort of feel like i'm rambling on here in the beginning no, that, that's okay the very first question so we'll see how we do as we go but that's okay in in summary it's reliability things work or it's failure things don't work and we, we really like to study both of them yeah i love i love the start and the reason why is because there may be some listeners that are wondering, how is this relevant to me in my life? And I love how you distinguish the difference between the organizational reliability and then the personal reliability I'm thinking of as effectiveness, uh, workability. And I want to I continue on that last point about context, because when you came into our organization, you were part of the catalyst for an entire contextual shift in our organization. I remember one of the most inspiring parts of that day was it was literally the first day for one of our new employees. His name's Mike Maluski, so shout out to Mike. And also Wingham, he was, he's only been at Fix at that time for a couple of weeks. Uh, so both of them brand new. And through that day together, they were able to create this declaration for our company. And so the, the beginning of the podcast, I'd love to spend time with organizational effectiveness, reliability. Uh, and then at the end, I'd love to talk about the personal effectiveness and reliability. But I want to read this statement that they wrote, uh, they came up with, and that was a contextual shift for our team. They wrote, we, Fix Software, declare a world where reliability is at the core of an organization's performance, where reliability goes hand in hand with workplace safety, environmental sustainability, and financial success. A world where on-site fatalities no longer exist. And so where I wanna go from this is, I've heard you describe your life as this 99 year life experiment. And so I'm curious, how did you get to a point where you can communicate to an entire company how, the importance of reliability? I'm just wondering, what did, what did that journey look like? How did you get where you're at right now? Well, let me, let me say something before that, is that what they really did there, what that declaration really is, is, is a stand. And that's where I work. Um, and that's what I do. And so, you know, they, uh, there was something about our conversation that day that led them to that, you know, that particular stand, that statement that they made. And what I really enjoy about stands is that they don't have to be based on anything. In other words, so, you know, there they were the first day, uh, you know, you could say they don't really even know what's going on inside the company. And, and you know, they wrote a stand uh, that they were willing to take. And it wasn't based on fact. It wasn't based on what was possible. It wasn't based on what was defensible. It wasn't based on what was reasonable. It wasn't based on how they could argue and win an argument that this was possible. 
In fact, it very well, it could have been impossible at the time that they made the statement, or it could have been highly unlikely, or it could have been really difficult, um, and, you know, or any of those descriptors. And so they made the stand. And what happened is, as soon as they made the stand, nothing happened. Of course, you know, the world does not organize itself around your stand right away, but the world will eventually organize around your stand if you stand in it long enough. If you stand in it long enough and you, you, are, you stand in it the right way, you stand in it with integrity, you stand in it with authenticity, you stand in it with responsibility, the world will start to organize around it. Um, and so they have, I, you know, it's interesting. I'd like to see where it's gone since the day they made it to, the, to today and how the world is organizing around their stand, how they're organizing the world around the stand and how the world's organizing around that stand. To me, that is pure creation. That's pure power. That's pure experience. Um, and they're in control of their own destiny. They're, they, they've charted a course. They've said where they're going, and they've invited people to join them in that stand. And it's pure stand. It isn't to do with argument. It isn't to do with logic. It isn't to do with, with believability. It's to do with this is a, a group of people who are committed, and they're simply standing in it. And they're looking to see what happens when they stand in it. And then they're living life. They can be counted on to live their life and do their work from that stand. And then they're at risk because people are looking at them saying, hey, that's different than the stand you said. Or that's, you know, hey, that is the stand you're taking and you're actually living it. And I'll join you or I'll support you or I'll, I'll do things about that. And so it, to me, that's the core of everything. And so I'm very happy to hear that. How, you know, how I got to that, um, you know, there's two, two answers to that question, you know, professionally and in, in reliability, you know, the blah, blah, blah is sort of, I, I, I was on a regular, I'm, you know, seven of eight kids, they're all high achievers, doctors, lawyers, authors, um, you know, highly accomplished. And, and, um, uh, you know, I was a guest on that same path and about, you know, in my, in my second, I was in an economics 201 class and I think they drew a picture of the bell curve of an economic cycle. And I, it was the seventies to put it in context, early seventies, but I, you know, I walked straight out of that class saying, I'm never going to care about money, uh, you know, and then had to work my tail off that day on for the rest of my life. Uh, my advice is stay in college to anybody listening to this, uh, to this, to this podcast. But, you know, I, and so I went a different direction. I went technical and I became an automotive mechanic. Um, I learned how to rebuild engines and transmissions. I was called what they called a heavy. And I did that for a number of years and I really loved doing it. I was very happy. And I worked for, you know, various, uh, you know, Ford dealers and things of that nature. Eventually I opened up my own auto repair shop back in Nebraska where I had grown up and you know, raising golden retrievers. And, you know, I was a vegetarian at the time and, you know, heating my house and my shop with wood that I cut, you know, live in the, live in the, live in sort of the organic lifestyle. And, uh, uh, you know, something uh, uh, changed. I met some folks who invited me to New York and I ended up changing, changing and going to New York. And I'd met an inventor who had made a, uh, a sensor, a high frequency ultrasonic sensor that was good for machinery asset condition monitoring. And, uh, you know, for the next 20 years, I sort of ran, I was the CEO of that company and I built it into a global, uh, a global organization that's still a leader in its technology in ultrasound today. And that's where I really learned a lot about, you know, being able to anticipate potential failures in equipment 
and things of that nature. Um, you know, but there's more than just, you know, monitoring with sensors to reliability. So as I started to broaden my, my practice area, I met all the gurus who were developing the early methodologies and approaches and techniques and technologies. They were geniuses. They are geniuses. Some of them have passed, unfortunately, now. And, you know, I would watch them do their thing. And sometimes it would work in Atlanta, for example. And then they would do the same thing in Dallas and it wouldn't work at all. And I, it was very confusing to me because they would do the same thing in Atlanta and Dallas and they would have two different results. Um, so I started studying, you know, uh, why that is. What are, these, what are these gaps? What do the people have in common? What's starting to, what's causing us to have such a struggle with advancing reliability, with advancing asset management in a way that's sensible. Um, and so that's what my life's work became about, is, is about advancing reliability and asset management, because I'm convinced that we can save lives through that. A lot of, too many people are getting hurt and killed as a result of that right here in the United States of America. And, um, and we're wasting, you know, we're not sustainable. We're not as sustainable. We could be, we, we have opportunities for, for hundreds to thousands of percent sustainability improvements uh, through reliability. And of course, then the companies can remain profitable and maintain their, their promise of gainful employment to the people who they're asking to do the work. So, long, you know, that was a long winded way of saying, you know, I start, and the more I got into it, the more I found it was a people journey as much as it was a technical journey. And then the more I found all of the positive planetary benefits that could come from reliability, we could change the world with reliability. And it seemed to be missing. You know, if you think about it, you know, reliability centered government, you know, reliability centered schools, reliability centered grocery stores, reliability centered car dealerships, reliability centered software companies, you know, uh, let's have it all reliability centered. And all that really means is it works. It works like you expect it to and there's no gap, you know, and, and can we have that? Is that possible? And can we have a world that just works for everybody? Everybody, no one left behind. Why do we have to leave anyone behind? And so that's what I'm working for. I got to pause here and just say, you are the epitome of the ideal caricature I, d I imagined when I was putting this podcast together in the first place. Gripped is about being engaged. It's about being passionate about the work you do. And it is so clear to me, my listeners must be thinking right now, holy shit, this guy's passionate about reliability, right? So I'm, I'm super excited about, what you've been sharing so far. And I want to dig a little bit deeper into leadership because you talked about becoming the CEO of an organization. You talked about when we described the declaration earlier, how it was coming from nothing. And I've heard you in a speech that I listened to say this quote, and I want to ask you to expand on it for our listeners to describe what it means to you. You said, leadership is defined as actions that result in a created future that wasn't going to happen anyways. So the, the world sort of has a, uh, a flow, a drift, a movement. You know, if you, if you stand still, the sun comes up and the sun goes down. In reality, the sun doesn't go up and go down. We spin, but we notice it as the sun going up and the sun going down. 
um, you know, and things are moving around us. We don't have to do anything. Like, in other words, congratulations, Terry, the sun came up. Or congratulations, Terry, the sun went down. I didn't do anything to make that happen. You know, that's the, that's the default future, right? The default future is happening all around us. Oftentimes, we take credit for it or we, we you know, we think, we did something to make something happen. But it's really what we call the default future, the future that's showing up on your doorstep if you don't do something differently. Um, if you don't intervene, if you don't change course, if you don't take an intention and, and apply it, then it's the default future that's coming. It doesn't, it's, not a, it's not a judgment. It's not, you know, wow, the default future is bad and the created future is good. It, it please, it is not that. I'm not selling one future over another that, you know, if you're, you know, got a $10 billion and your family loves you and, and, you know, things are good. You can keep that default future, man, just to hang in there, uh, you know, and live life. But, but, you know, most of us have, you know, some other things we want to accomplish. And so that's that created future. The created future is one that you're going to intervene with intention. You're going to intervene into that drift, into that flow, and you're going to move the boat. You're going to, you know, you're going to do something different than, than what was going to happen if you didn't. I, I, I don't know if that's making sense or not, but we're going to, with intention, um, with our stand, with our words, we are going to create something because that is what man is the master of. Um, you know, we are not dogs and cats. You know, a dog sees a rock and doesn't say, wow, there's a rock. It's hard. It's round. I could throw it. I could build a house with it. I could do the dog has no such thought of a rock. You know, we look at a rock and we see that and we're like, oh, wow, we have all this stuff and we bring all this meaning to the rock. You know, I think we don't really appreciate the fact that we're the ones making that up. You know, the, the, the rock is just the rock. If we all got taken away from the planet, the rock would still be there. No one would be describing the rock. And therefore, the rock would just sit. But we describe it. We use our words and we describe it. And therefore, we give it experience. We give it life, so to speak. We create around it. And how do we do that is with our words. It's so deceptively simple that people don't even, they, they, people listening to this are like, he's so full of baloney, you know? But it's, it's just our words. And, and our words are very powerful. But that's why it's really important that we have stuff like integrity handled in our life. We have stuff like authenticity handled in our life. We understand stuff like taking responsibility and taking a stand so that, you know, we can be powerful in those areas. We can create. There's, there's a clearing for us. There's some room and some space to do so. Um, I don't know if that's getting closer to what you want to hear, what you want to talk about. Yeah. Are, we, are we knocking at the door? Yeah, speaking, yeah, exactly. Speaking of leadership, through this creation process and language, uh, a future that wasn't necessarily going to happen anyways, I'm sure you've had a bunch of roadblocks and obstacles and bumps in the road along the way. I'm wondering if you could share a story about maybe a leadership lesson that you learned the hard way. Would that look like for your team before and after that shift? I know you're leading Reliability Web today. You've had tons of experience in the past leading teams. Can you, can you share an example of that? And then my uh -huh. intention is to get into values well, you know, my, and things like that. My, my best, you know, I'm, I'm not, I make no claim about being a great leader. Uh, and you'd have to talk to the team here. Sometimes I, you know, sometimes I do things that maybe they consider great. Other times I'm sure I, 
I'm positive I do things that they do not consider so great. Um, so, so please, I'm, you know, that's not coming from me. Um, you know, so, so, uh, but I, I want to say that the most powerful lessons in my life have come when I have um, been in complete loss. Uh, you know, and I'm not recommending that as a method for anyone because uh, it's very painful uh, to do. But I have lost everything several times in my life, sometimes my health, other times my wealth. Um, and, you know, it's, I've been through that cycle numerous times. And while it is extremely difficult to go through, uh, it, is, uh, it is incredibly enlightening um, to lose everything, to have nothing. And then, because then you have to be an absolute moron not to look around and realize what's important in life. You know, when you strip everything away, when you take everything away, you know, uh, or, or, or maybe people who haven't had a, a personal loss like that, maybe when you've lost somebody who's close to you. And I don't mean to be morbid, but when they're, you know, if you've ever been to their funeral and you're, you're noticing they're, they're there, you're saying goodbye to them, they're not taking anything with them. They're not taking their job. They're not taking their money. They're not taking their, they're not taking their family even. You know, they're taking their life as lived. That's all that remains of them. Um, and so, you know, I think we can really uh, learn from that, you know, as to what's meaningful in the world. We let a lot of other things into our life that, not that they're not meaning, not that they're not important, maybe, let's put it that way. There's, there's things that come into our life that are important, but they're not meaningful. They're not really going to move us. They're not going to change our experience. They're not going to be powerful. They're important. You know, it's nice to have money as opposed to not, not having money. It's nice to have choices as opposed to not having choices. But some of the happiest people I've seen in the world as I travel don't have money. You know, they have, they have, their families are all around them, and they're, but they're living in a cardboard box practically. Um, you know, so it, it isn't some of the distractions in life that, that is where happiness comes from. Um, you know, do things that are important to you. Do things that are meaningful to you. Do things that add to who you are and as a person and make you better as a person. And then look for people who stand in that same spot in relationships with you. You know, I stand in the spot that I'm committed to you being the best person that you can be. So whatever choices you make that are on that path, you know, I'm in, I'm in 100% support of that. You look for people who can, who can support you in that. And when you lose everything, the only people standing next to you are those people. <laughs> no one else will stand next to you when you've lost everything, when you've lost your health and when you've lost your wealth. The only people standing next to you are the ones who truly uh, love you as a person and support you as a person. Uh, and, you know, it's not about anything that you've accomplished or anything you've done or anything you've got. It's just about you. And that's a pretty powerful lesson to learn that you're you, not your accomplishments, not your children, not your job, not your car, you know, you're worthy of that support. You know, you deserve it and you can take it and you can accept it and then you can have a life built on it. And so for me, I look back on those times as some of the most valuable times of my life because they taught me, you know, intense lessons uh, about what's real. And before that, I'm not sure I knew exactly what was real. So I, I don't like that I had to go through that to discover what was real. But those are powerful leadership lessons for me um, about what's real. Okay. And I feel like you 
couldn't have set me up any better for the direction I want to take the rest of the show. You mentioned being stripped away from everything and then finding out what's most important. And to me, when I observe your work and the way you show up in life, I could tell that values are really important to you and you insert them in your organization, you insert them in your conversations. It's the exact same here in my life. It's the same at FIX. You know, FIXER stands for flexible initiative, intelligence, X factor, empathy, relentlessness. Mm. And when I'm, when I'm listening to and I observe the way you operate in the world, I'm, I'm seeing how you align yourself with the values you've described for reliability web, integrity, authenticity, responsibility. Can you talk a, a little bit about as a leader, how you communicate the values and live the values and then how values contribute to a team's collective performance? Um, well, yes, I can. Uh, and I, I want to get something clear about those particular values. Uh, because sometimes, you know, when people hear integrity or authenticity or responsibility, it can sound a little preachy. It can sound a little holier than thou. Right. And I don't mean a religious reference to that. I just, well, I just you know, want to get you that sense that I do not deal in those values from an ethical standpoint. And I do not deal in those values from a moral standpoint. Um, the work that I do is about exploring those values from a performance standpoint. So I want, I want, as the audience possibly stays tuned and listens to what we're about to talk about, them not to listen to me uh, preaching to them or, or proselytizing about integrity from an ethical or a moral standpoint, because I am in no such position to do that. Um, I am in a position to talk about what I know and what my work has revealed around performance related to integrity, performance related to authenticity, and performance related to responsibility. Um, that's what I'm interested in is how to make life work. Um, and so those are tools that we find are extremely valuable. And, and just briefly, you know, when we talk about integrity for us, it's about doing what we say we're going to do. And, and we're, we've discovered that we're humans and that we don't always do what we say we're going to do. Shocker. You know, that, that's what people have trouble listening to in this conversation about integrity, that they won't keep their word uh, because they're humans. And so people have a really hard time getting to that. Wow, I won't keep my word. That's right. You won't be keeping your word. So you better have a tool to deal with it when you don't. And so the tool is clean it up at the earliest possible opportunity. Clean up the mess that you made, you know, the, the consequences that you caused and the, dis the disadvantage you caused for the people that you didn't keep your word to. Clean it up um, at the earliest possible opportunity and then renew your word, restore your word, recover your word because we are nothing more than our word. And so again, if you look at it from a performance standpoint, just think about it from a common sense standpoint. Things work better when you do what you say you're going to do. And when you don't, and then you clean up the mess, they have an opportunity to work better again. So just from a simplistic standpoint, that's how it works. There's a lot more to it, but that's just from a simple standpoint. Authenticity is very much the same way. I'm telling people that, you know, at, at Reliability Web, our, you know, our biggest value is respect for people. But then if I don't treat my team respectfully, or if I don't treat an individual respectfully, I'm out of alignment. You could say I'm out of integrity with my, you know, the, uh, the, the authenticity statement that I'm making. And so that has to be cleaned up that, you know, so you, you, when you 
say things uh, or, or things are expected of you because of your role or, you know, you're working within the laws or the rules of a country or a, a state or a city, you know, you're, you're keeping your word and you're being authentic. And when you're not, you need to find ways to, to clean that up. And that has a direct effect on performance. And so we say that can affect performance 100 to 500 percent, just dealing with authenticity and integrity in a, in a workforce again, not from a moral and an ethical standpoint, simply from a performance standpoint. The, but the granddaddy of all of them, the responsibility, uh, is really, for me, stand where you started with the, with the uh, co-workers, the, who were the first day co-workers from FIX, you know, creating that declaration. For me, a declaration is a simple language tool, a fundamental language tool, but it's also one of the most powerful, which is saying what so. Here's what I say is so, and here's how you can count on me to live, and here's how you can count on me to show up in various circumstances. You know, so taking responsibility. Um, you know, we have, a, we have a hurricane approaching us right now down here in Florida, and, you know, we have work we have to do. So the team here, it's not their fault that there's a, uh, uh, a hurricane coming here, but they take full responsibility for doing what we said we were gonna do when we were gonna do it. And if we don't do it, they'll take full responsibility for cleaning up the mess that we're gonna, whether we're gonna make as a result of not doing it. That is regardless of whatever the hurricane does one way or the other. So in other words, yes, things happen in life and there are, there are things that you don't have any control over. What you always have control over is sort of, if I was gonna have to put it in a simple box, is your response to it. So I guess to answer your question, we, yes, I do my best to share those values here at Reliability Web. To be completely frank with you, what we find at Reliability Web is that our team is also very diverse and they have their own value sets. Um, so yes, we have a value set um, as a company, but we also treasure the individual values that people bring in. And what's more important than what specific values they have, they don't have to share my values or our values. What's interesting is that they declare their values so that we know who they are. They're not, they're not sort of hidden. And when you declare your values, you're, again, you're putting your neck out. You're sticking your neck out. You're living at risk because people can look and say, aha, he says he's respectful, but look, he's not acting respectful. Um, and you, you, know, you have to walk the walk and talk the talk or you lose credibility in your organization. So I love it when our team shares values, um, their values, and they're not the same. They're all different because it gives me the picture of that person. It gives their co colleagues a picture of that person. Um, and then we know how come they're making the decisions they're making, how come they're coming from the point of view they're coming from. It helps us really understand each other. And we think values is a great Rosetta Stone to understand the people you work around. I love, I love how the organization is open to the diversity in different people's values. I know from what I've seen, diversity is really important to the team. I know they have an initiative with, as an example, women in reliability. And I actually, I know that FIX is also a supporter of that initiative. So I'm wondering how does diversity fit into your set of values that also along the lines of for performance reasons? Well, you know, and I walk, a, I walk a thin line because there's something I don't like about all the diversity and I'll probably get into trouble because I'm on political ground. <laughs> okay. But I'm going to say it anyway, is that, you know, the, the, you know, I'm, uh, so, uh, you know, as you can probably hear from my voice, I'm a man. 
uh, and I own this company, you know, so, you know, you could put two and two together and say he's the boss, so to speak. And, and now I'm supporting a diversity, uh, you know, experience here. But, you know, I, I, I don't feel like I want that to be the cascade. I don't feel like I want that to be the sequence. In other words, it's not me giving permission for a diversity, you know, activity. I don't want that to be the case. In other words, what I see in a lot of companies and a lot of organizations is they're handling diversity um, as, a, as, a, as like a program or something. And it's like the, the, the man in charge has said it's okay to have a diversity program. You know, it's like, wow, I don't want to be that man in charge giving permission for a diversity program. That is definitely not the box I want to come from. Uh, you know, I, I just want there to be a diversity program and I don't want them to have to ask me for permission for it. Um, you know, the, 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 and what, what's really behind it, what's really started to shift me is in my work. I'm so boring. Everything goes back to my work because I am so passionate about it. And, and in my work, I've done experiments where we have taken um, subject matter experts who are super deep subject matter experts about reliability, put them around a table, and then we've taken in every sense of the word diverse teams that have maybe almost no reliability expertise, but they're diverse in every sense of the word. In fact, better maybe is to describe them unique. Um, you know, age, gender, culture, you know, a job function, however you'd want to describe a, a difference. And they make better. So, and then we do, we do an, we give a scenario, a, a survival, a reliability survival scenario, and they rank their choices of, for surviving individually. Then they get together and they do it as a team. The diverse teams, A, always have more movement. They benefit more from being on a team, the way we measure it. And the quality of their decision-making is a lot higher. Um, and so it's a, it's, a, it's a no brainer from a company standpoint, even the most jaded of companies has to say, wow, we're gonna get a better business decision quality from, from a more unique makeup of our workforce. Um, you know, so they're going to, they're going to do better. And our, our numbers are all pointing that direction. Everything I read points that direction. Um, but what I, what I don't like is sort of this paternalistic control of how much diversity will support and how much we won't. I, you know, I, I'm a child of the sixties and seventies. I like to just see it happen organically and, you know, without permission, so to speak, but that's just me. So, you know, anybody who's doing great work and they're doing it through permission and channels, God bless you. I'm in support of you. Um, I just don't want to be seen as like a, you know, a, 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 you know, the guy you have to come through to get permission for diversity. If, if that's so, if I have anything to do with permission to, to anybody in the world, it's consider it granted. Got it. Yeah. And I think we're all interested in better results. I think we're all interested in, in better performance. And I think that's a lot, a, a big reason why our listeners are coming to this show and they're spending the time getting educated. I want to finish off the podcast. You know, we talked, you, you mentioned there how diversity impacts organizational performance and doing better. And you were able to see those results very clearly. One thing that may not be at the top of mind for a lot of people is I want to do better in my work. I want to do better in my relationships. I want to be better in my, in my fitness and my health, my spirituality, but I, I don't always want just incremental improvements. Sometimes I want quantum leaps. Mm -hmm. 
the way I would think about this is how do I, instead of upgrading, let's say as an example, my operating system, how do I, how do I get a brand new one? So instead of getting an upgrade on the software, how do I change my operating system completely so I can get some dramatic new results? You mentioned context mm -hmm. earlier in this conversation. Have you ever had a, like a, just a, a total context shift in your life? What was that like? And how can we look towards just like, as we're closing this show off, like quantum leaps in our lives through context shift, or maybe there's a, there's another way. Yeah. You know, you and I talked a little bit uh, prior to the show and I guess I would say that, yeah, I, you know, sure. And, and I'll, I'll go specific to what we were talking about. You know, I was fortunate um, like I say, I grew up in the 60s and 70s where there was a lot of um, movement towards self-realization, self-actualization, uh, things, things of that nature. You know, it was, it was rough and tumble, um, but it was good. And, um, uh, you know, I, I fell into some of that. You know, I did a – so one of the first big context shifts for me was I, I did some work with um, what was called Esther or Earhart Seminar Training. And for me, you know, there was a big shift in my life there, which basically was one of, of, of personal, taking personal responsibility for my life, taking a stand that, you know, my life was mine and I could make with it and do with it, you know, what, whatever I wanted to do with it and, and living in an empowered life and a created life. Um, so that, that was one, uh, but I didn't really have a methodology, uh, you know, like it, it, it was a very powerful experience and those who did it, I think 500,000 people completed it and then they basically shut it down. Uh, and, and those people went out in the world and they made all kinds of amazing things happen. Um, I don't know if I live up to that, but I, you know, I'm very proud that I was part of that and I got a lot out of it. What I didn't take away was a methodology. I didn't know how to reproduce it. I didn't know how to share it with other people. I didn't know how to do anything with it. Um, so I just lived my life. And, you know, did some things and, you know, was, 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 it was good. It all working well for me. Um, but I didn't know how to, I guess I, I didn't have a framework. I didn't have a, a way to, to, to corral it maybe, or to use it as a resource. Like I maybe wanted to, I didn't understand what had happened. I didn't understand what had taken place to cause the context shift. Okay. Um, and I didn't know how to recreate it. I didn't know how to tap back into it. And I wasn't thrilled with the organization that provided it. It seemed a little, you know, I don't want to use the word cultish, but it seemed a little, you know, I just didn't like the way that they, they you know, tried to sell you different trainings and things. So I just tended to shy away from the organization. And so I didn't really have much more to do with it for, I don't know, several decades. And, and uh, but then I ran into the creator of that particular program and he was offering, uh, he was trying to transform the individual concept of leadership. And there I, I you know, I started to, uh, talk to him a little bit and I worked directly with him on some of that, some of his vision in that regard. And that really started me off on a new, uh, a new look at my work. Um, and so they, so it sort of intersected. Now, you know, there were other, other big influencers, you know, like Deming and some other folks also, but from a context standpoint, there probably wasn't anybody more, more um, powerful than, than Werner uh, Earhart and his work. Uh, on me and changing the the nature the context of the work that that I do um, you, you refer to it as an operating system I refer to it as as and it's if I was talking about my work as a result of what I've learned 
over the years is that I don't tend to want to spend a lot of time adding to what you know. I like to spend time rearranging how you know what you know. And that to me is context. Um, you know, how you know it and how you deal with it and how, you know, so it's the rearranging yeah. of, of how you know it and how you think about it. Um, and that's what I like. And that's what I got from, from all of that. Um, it was, and that's been a blast. I mean, you know, I love that. I, you know, I love seeing things in a way that other people don't look at it. And so if you want to do that, I, I, uh, well, I, you know, the way I continue to do it, if you're in reliability is come to the reliability leadership <laughs> the way to do it. Otherwise, I'm not sure. I mean, you described some programs you've been through that some of my friends and co colleagues and coworkers and family have been through called the landmark forum. That does seem like a really good program too. I like the programs again, a little less thrilled with the organization. Uh, but I like the program and, um, uh, you know, uh, anything that helps you kind of take a look at yourself and, and you, you know, almost, it's almost like if I was kidding people, I'd say, you know, whatever you're thinking, it's probably wrong. And, uh, and uh, you know, I don't mean that in a, in a pejorative way. I just mean that we, we're, we come on this planet and we think we're confused about where these thoughts and these ideas and how they are and what they really mean. And, and I think programs like, you know, EST and, and Landmark can help us get rid of some of the baggage uh, and confusion about that kind of stuff in life so that we can clear up and get to what we want to get to. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I wish we had a little bit more time because I'd love to get into, you mentioned there, you know, how it occurs to you. I've yeah. heard you talk about that as well and how, you know, our results in life are just perfectly in alignment with how things occur to us. I do want to shift gears and close this off. We typically end every podcast by just letting you share something from your heart. I want to set that up. Uh, you don't need to keep going in this direction, but I want to want to read something to our listeners and to you that I know speaks to you because I've heard you describe this in the past. I know you're a huge George Bernard Shaw fan. Yeah. And so I wanna, I wanna read uh, something that he's written and then tee up our last question for you to be able to speak from your heart about anything you'd like. I know I direct the flow of this conversation. And so I want you to just finish off with you know, whatever's speaking to you today, but here's what he wrote. This is the true joy in life, the being used being used for a purpose recognized by yourself as a mighty one, the being a force of nature instead of a feverish, selfish, little clod of ailments and grievances complaining that the world will not devote itself to making you happy. I am of the opinion that my life belongs to the whole community, and as long as I live, it is my privilege to do for it whatever I can. I want to be thoroughly used up when I die, for the harder I work, the more I live. I rejoice in life for its own sake. Life is no brief candle for me. It is a sort of splendid torch, which I have got a hold for of the moment. And I want to make it burn as brightly as possible before handing it off to future generations. So I'm just wondering, that's a beautifully written uh, poem and statement. What does that mean to you? And, and uh, if you want to share anything from your heart as we close off the show, I know you got another meeting. Uh, feel free to, to close it off however you'd like. 
Well, I love that George Bernard Shaw poem. Um, for means it means several things to me. Is that you know what is there, I and mean, what do you take with you? You know, you 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 spend a third of your life sleeping. So my advice is buy the best mattress you can possibly. <laughs> You know, get that. You spend, you know, a third of your life with your family. So, you know, just sacrifice whatever you need to sacrifice for your loved ones and your family and your friends and, you know, be with them and any opportunity you have to contribute to them, do that. Don't ever miss a chance to do that. Don't ever miss a chance to share how you feel about them. Then, then what's left is, is work. And what he talks about in there is he wants to be so uh, thrown into his work that he's used. By the day he's ready to lay down and, and leave this world, he is thoroughly used up. There's not another breath to come out of him. There's not another muscle movement to be had. He has given it all. He has left it all on the field. It isn't, you know, people live their life like they're reserving it. They're saving it for something. I, I, hey, I'd, I'd help that. I'd, I'd, we'd reach some high heights with that guy over there, but I got to save that. I mean, you know, I can't do that all with him right now. You know, we can, we got to hold some back. Do not hold anything back. There is no reason to hold anything back ever. Play all out. Play on the field. Don't sit in the stands and watch life. Get down there on the field and play and leave nothing. Leave nothing. Play it all like it's your last minute, like it's your last second, like it's your last day. Um, and, and that's, to me, what George Bernard Shaw is saying in that. And then hand it off to somebody else who's better equipped to take it um, and, and move it to the, you know, to the next station down the line because there's always somebody else. You know, it's the beauty of, beauty of humanity, the beauty of life, you know, the circle that we're in. Um, and and you know, since you're giving me an open invitation, um, you know, I'll quote John Lennon for the next line. And all we're saying is give peace a chance. You know, we, we spend so much time and energy and effort, you know, on, on our war machine. And I'm not, you know, I know there's times where we have to defend what is ours and what we believe in. Um, but we, we certainly seem to invest a lot in the, in the accoutrements of war. And you have to wonder if uh, humanity would be down the road a little bit further if we spent an equivalent amount on the accoutrements of peace. I think that's a perfect way to wrap this up. I really appreciate appreciate being uh, being in the conversation. Hope uh, if there's room in the future, you'll invite me on again. Yeah, I'd absolutely love to. I know today is going to resonate with a lot of our listeners. I know I'm going to have to come back and re-listen and make sure that I'm being fully used up. As, ah. uh, George Bernasha said, "You are you to me are an inspiration." The way you communicate is the reason why I wanted you on this show. You've, you're very inspiring for me. You sound like a poet. And so I appreciate you being a champion for reliability, for workability, for authenticity and responsibility. I really admire the work that you do. I really hope that we have an opportunity to meet again in person soon. And you will definitely have to be back for a round two, Terrence. Terrific, Jonathan. Thank you so much. Okay. Have a great day.